last night, Joanna talked about the five hindrances, craving and aversion, restlessness and sloth and doubt. And she talked about how sometimes this character in Buddhism uh, that is referred to as Mara uh, can be seen as the personification of the five hindrances or all of the uh, difficulties and afflictive emotions and... that we experience while we're seeking liberation, when we're seeking happiness, freedom. Those experiences that block wisdom, that make wisdom difficult to to experience. I was reflecting on how the Buddha, after seven years of intensive practice, seven years of retreat-like practice, like you're on, could you imagine just staying here for seven years? (laughs) Sitting and walking all day? Of course, that wasn't. He had studied concentration meditations, and he had done extreme ascetic uh, renunciation practices. But as he came to discovering and developing mindfulness, seeing that concentration as a primary path and technique was not transformative, did not allow him to access uh, liberation and coming to a mindful approach to himself and his emotions and his mind. And then he took that seat, that final seat under the Bodhi tree, And in the stories, who knows if it's factual or mythological, but in the stories, he says that he was attacked. He said he took that seat with resolution, with strong aspiration for liberation, for freedom. He says, I was attacked by the armies of Mara. As Joanna pointed to last night, hatred in his mind, resentments, the way that I see it, 
he sat there trying to be mindful and he saw all of this anger and resentment and inner violence. And he said it was like I was being attacked by spears and arrows. Strong aversion. He said, and I felt that I was attacked by lust. Mara came as tempting sexual fantasy arising in his mind. Now, of course, that's what's happening for you too, right? Having some cravings. having some aversion. That's what happens when you meditate. It's normal. (laughs) That's the way it is. We want meditation to be all peaceful and tranquil and... But first what we see is all of the things that are blocking it, the hindrances. Blocking it being our wisdom, our compassion, our love. First we see what's in the way. But it's the Buddha's response that we're looking for as we practice. And this morning's instruction, I said... Mindfulness of breath and body, emotions, thoughts, the whole package, present time awareness. But not only what's happening right now, how does it feel? Is it painful? Is it pleasurable? Or is it neither? Is it neutral? And I think it's important for us to reflect on that that's uh, what the Buddha was doing on that eve of his enlightenment. He was sitting there and he was experiencing pain. The attacks of Mara and the pain, he said it was like, like a war was being raged on me, a battle. Weapons. And craving, lust, Mara was tempting me. My mind, Mara is just the mind. Mara is not some magical deity that lives outside of us. Mara is what we are all dealing with, the human condition. And what he found, I think from trial and error, he saw, I could get really concentrated and ignore my pain. I could get really concentrated and and ignore the cravings, the strong desires, the lusts. I could totally, I heard a term today that I'd never heard before from one of the staff in the staff room. We talk about spiritual bypass. And somebody said, 
Oh yeah, some people do bypassana. <laughs> Even using vipassana to avoid. Vipassana, bypassana. I love it. I'm borrowing it. Thank you. Seeing that avoidance was only giving limited satisfaction, that ignoring pain, avoiding pain, suppressing pain, even though you can do that in deep meditative states, it's not actually the solution. And he, I think through trial and error and all of that asceticism and uh, concentration and coming to mindfulness, realized the only rational relationship to pain is not ignoring it, but is learning to care about it. Not ignoring Mara and bypassing it, but turning towards the difficult emotions, turning towards the pain, turning into the skid. And it's so counterintuitive. Everything in us wants to run from pain, wants to avoid pain, wants to ignore pain, wants to medicate it. And mindfulness is asking us, and the Dharma is asking us, to turn towards it, to face it. Maybe even to embrace it. To feel it fully and to learn to care about it, that it's the only wise relationship to pain that there is. And so as Mara attacks with the arrows, you know, the image most of you do, um, that he radiates compassion, care, love, kindness, forgiveness, mercy towards the pain in his mind, in his body. And he transforms the arrows and spears into beautiful flowers. This second foundation of mindfulness, uh, Vedana or Vedana, feeling tone. Our awareness of, our relationship to, our contact with pain and pleasure and the moments where it's neither or the experiences that are neutral. I feel passionately that this is the core practical transformative technique that the Buddha offers us to end suffering. Through developing and uncovering and coming into a relationship with pain that is friendly that is accepting, that is caring. When I named this course Awakening the Heart through Training the Mind, this is what I'm talking about. We train the mind in mindfulness as the Buddha did. He sat there 
breath and body awareness. And through bringing our attention into the present time unfolding, by seeing what's happening and how it feels, how Mara is attacking now, what cravings, what aversions, what doubts, what fears, or what joy is arising, or what ease, tranquility, calm abiding, by seeing what's happening, then we have to choose how we're going to relate to what's happening. What's the appropriate? What's the wise? What's the response to this moment that's going to create well-being and end dissatisfaction? When that delusion arises in us that says, I would be happy if I was having a more pleasant time. And whether that's uh, sexual pleasure or that's sensual or material or just some form of comfort or... that deep confusion that I think we're just wired with, part of our survival instinct, that manifests at some level as I'd be happy if. I'll be happy when. And so, of course, the appropriate response is the Buddha sitting there under the tree in the sexual fantasies and Mara is saying, you know, that part of his mind is saying, you'd be happy if you had a thousand naked people dancing around you. It would be a party. That, that, would, be, that would be a party. Then I'd be happy. Depending on how you hear the story, it's, I think it's quite interesting. I think that the Buddha might have been a little bit kinky. It's not too sacrilegious to say so. Because it says, first Mara came with Mara's daughters and these naked dancing girls, and it didn't work. There was that strong resolve that renunciation, unmoved by it. And then Mara said, well, maybe he's into mature women. And so then older women came. Those who had borne several childs, children, it says in the scriptures. So and as far as I'm concerned, the Buddha's sitting there thinking about young women. He's sitting there thinking about old women. says, uh, maybe he's into pregnant women. Some people like pregnant, there's a fetish for that. Mara says, how about some 
fully pregnant ladies. You know, just the mind going through, and of course it's very heterosexual centric, but whatever your preferences and wherever or orientation is and wherever your mind goes, maybe young men, maybe uh, old men, maybe hairy men, maybe chubby chasers. I don't know. Of course, really. <laughs> of course, really. Um, religious and conservative Buddhists don't want to believe that the Buddha could have been having these kind of thoughts just before his enlightenment, and so um, they really make up this story that it couldn't have been his mind because his mind was perfect or almost perfect, and so Mara actually has to be this sort of deity in traditional Buddhist. Uh, thought a lot of the time that's actually kind of magic, mystical, uh, sort of the devil. Uh, Stephen Batchelor wrote that wonderful book, Living with the Devil, about Buddha's and Mara's relationship. But I think really clearly that it's just psychological analogy. That's my impression anyways, my perspective. And that in the face of all of that strong desire and lust and craving and that delusion that maybe I'd be happy with some sort of sense pleasure would make me happy. Both the uh, experience of renunciation, of not satisfying the desires, of not believing them, of seeing through the mind's craving... And also developing a wise relationship to pleasure because uh, after the awakening and in the teachings, the core teaching says this is the middle path. It's not the full renunciation of avoiding all pleasure, but it's, it's avoiding the extremes of indulging every desire and craving or avoiding every sense pleasure. So as we sit in, in mindfulness and we train the mind to, and we experience pleasant thoughts and feelings and sensations, the rational, appropriate, the wise relationship that we're looking for, that the Buddha had, that he developed, is non-attached appreciation. When it feels good and it's appropriate, enjoy it. We don't have to turn away from pleasure to be spiritual. We have to break our addiction. We have to break our confusion that pleasure equals happiness. But there's that part of the heart that has uh, total appreciation for joy, 
for pleasure, for happiness, for beauty. That's a wise part of the heart. We don't have to shut that down in order to be spiritual, in order to be free. And that final attack of Mara that Joanna pointed us to last night, when the mind says, you're unworthy. Liberation would be self-indulgent, the mind says. Compassion is a whole bunch of self-pity. Being kind to yourself. is way too indulgent. That part of the mind and Mara's attack, that uh, the part of us that doesn't know our own worth. That doesn't have confidence in our own abilities. Jack Hornfield likes to uh, remind people when he teaches that many of the um, suttas, many of the teachings, traditional teachings, begin with the phrase, O nobly born ones. And that he's not talking to a specific group of uh, 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 nobility, he's talking to every being, every caste, every race, every uh, religion, every living being. He's saying, "You, you have nobility. The noble truths, the ennobling truth that we can experience directly for ourselves through the practice. But we forget that we are also royalty, that we are nobly born, that we are worthy of the greatest happiness, of total freedom. That there's some part of our confused wiring some sort of pervasive uh, poverty mentality where we don't know. Of course, some of it probably has to do with some conditioning, some subpar parenting, all of that stuff. But even with good, loving parents, There's a story I'm sure many of you have heard about many years ago, over 20 years ago, a bunch of Western teachers were meeting with the Dalai Lama in a kind of Western teacher conference. And 
the Dalai, His Holiness asked the group of Western teachers, what do you think uh, the most difficult uh, or more, most pervasive suffering that your students are facing? And the Western teachers got together and conferenced a little bit. And uh, they came back in agreement and they said, probably uh, low self-esteem and self-hatred. Feeling bad about themselves. Or hating themselves. Or doubting themselves. And as the story goes... um, they had to actually go back and forth quite a bit, the translator and his holiness, to figure out uh, what they were talking about. And they finally came to the conclusion, and the Dalai Lama asked the other Tibetan lamas in the room, I said, does this happen in Tibet? Do people hate themselves? Do people not know their own worth? People not understand that they have Buddha nature, that they're worthy, that liberation is their birthright? And that the Tibetans didn't even have a word for self-hatred. That it was not a com- I'm sure it's not that it doesn't exist, but that it wasn't a common phenomenon. It's so pervasive with us. With Westerners in general. I hear there's a healthy dose of that over here in England. I'm told... The Buddha touches the earth in response to a feeling of unworthiness arising. Buddha, uh, Mara says to him, who do you think you are? Why do you think you're worthy of happiness, of freedom, of liberation? And the Buddha does not answer, but he touches uh, the earth. He puts his hand down. There's different interpretations, different stories. The one that I like best is that he's just saying, because I'm part of this planet. I'm part of the four elements. Everything that is part of the four elements, everybody is worthy. You don't have to be special. It's not just for special, (laughs) worthy people. It's for all beings. It is an innate capacity in all of us to awaken. He defied his mind. He defied the cravings and the aversions, the doubts. He stopped taking it so personal. And he started a relationship a lifelong relationship with Mara. That when those doubts and those cravings and those aversions and those fears and that low self-esteem came up, he said, I see you, Mara, every time. Because he was paying attention. He was training his mind and something awakened. 
a relationship formed to the difficult states of mind. He didn't get free from them. Many Buddhists will have you believe that when you're enlightened, you will kind of smooth sailing. (laughs) Easy, easy peasy from here on out. No more. Basically, they want to present it as though you've had a lobotomy. No more difficult emotions for you. It's such crap. I mean, I I could be wrong. I don't know. I'm not liberated. But it just doesn't make sense to me that we would get rid of these core uh, thought patterns just because we have deep, deep insight into how impersonal they are the strong emotions and doubts and fears ending, just doesn't make sense. Not suffering about what arises makes sense. (coughs) Is practical. It's something that we can actually do. It seems that uh, through mindfulness practice and renunciation, the Buddha came to compassion. He came to non-attached appreciation. He came to an attitude of loving kindness, a quality of equanimity, of a balanced heart and mind. Although he said, I care about all living beings and all living beings have the capacity for liberation. He said, I also know my limitations. I can't free you. I care about your suffering, but I'm not going to suffer about your suffering. I want you to be free and I will guide you and I will support you and I will give you the instructions, but you have to do the work yourself. This experience of equanimity, of peace, is that even amongst those who suffer, be free. You don't have to suffer. Even amongst those who hate, walk in love and kindness and compassion. You don't have to join them. And what we know is that as he formulated the the core path, and as he came to his own awakening, and he defeated, you know, supposedly defeated Mara, and came to liberation, and saw clearly and responded appropriately. What we know is that Mara continued with him the rest of his life. Mara was there the next day. Mara was there all through his life. Mara was there on his deathbed because Mara is his mind. And as he formulated the teachings and he went and he found his, his mates, went and found his, his homies, his homeless crew that he'd been practicing with, 
bunch of street punks, I think. And he said, this is the way, uh, what has happened for me. I saw suffering and the cause of suffering, the end of suffering. And here is the path to end suffering. And the meditation instructions that he offers in the original formulation is just mindfulness, just vipassana. There's no metta, there's no karuna, there's no mudita, there's no upekka. The Brahma Viharas come along much later. And here's what I think. I could be wrong. I think that what happened for the Buddha is that vipassana led to loving kindness for all living beings. Through training his mind, his heart radiated kindness towards all living beings because he saw directly that's the only rational, practical, wise thing to do. Through training his mind and seeing pain directly, he started to, his the compassion was awakened, was accessed. Through training his mind, he came to equanimity and to appreciation of the appropriate pleasures and appreciative joy. For all of the appropriate and wise forms of pleasure and happiness in the world. Through Vipassana. But at some point, he realized, I think, oh, this isn't working so quickly for people. Uh, Not everybody is becoming kind and compassionate just through doing mindfulness. And the metta sutta and the brahma vihara practices and more emphasis on compassion entered later in his teaching when he said i actually need to give people some extra help here people need some more tools we need to learn to forgive ourselves he said i need to add a little west coast feminine to these teachings <laughs> These meditators are a little uptight. (laughs) Mindfulness by itself can be so dry. Even though I believe it leads to compassion. I know it does. But if we lead with compassion, with kindness, with love, it makes the practice much more... uh, Moist, full, balanced. We like to say or some people like to say, and I'm guilty of it occasionally myself, of saying, uh, wisdom and compassion. I say it all the time. But compassion's not separate from wisdom. It's not like some separate 
compassion over here and wisdom over here. There's even that, they say that uh, the, the liberation, the bird, uh, the wings of liberation, one wing is wisdom and one wing is compassion. I think it's a false distinction that it's all wisdom. Compassion is the wise relationship to pain and suffering. It's not separate from wisdom. Non-attached appreciation and sympathetic joy is the wise, the wisdom relationship to pleasure, to joy, to success. It's not separate from wisdom. Loving kindness towards ourselves. Towards our enemies. Towards strangers. Is an incredibly wise attitude to have. To develop. To sustain. But only if you want to be happy. Of course, it's all optional. This path is only for the radicals, the dissatisfied, the Buddha said only a handful in each generation would have the good blessing to be dissatisfied enough, and I think maybe to suffer enough. To take on this radical path of training the mind, of transforming our relationship to defying our mind, to defying our very survival instinct that loves pleasure and hates pain. Compassion is not natural to almost anybody. Compassion for your own pain. It's really abnormal. (laughs) It's really unnatural to soften and care and be friendly and compassionate towards your pain. It's really rare to not cling and crave and be addicted to pleasure. That's really... Rare to not believe your mind, to not believe that you are your mind or your body, to have insight and awareness and understanding of the impersonal nature of being. It's rare. But here we are, striving diligently towards our own liberation. The Buddha's final words 
Seek no external refuge. Don't look outside of yourself. Strive diligently towards your own liberation, he said. Retreat practice is diligent, appropriate, striving. Good work. What a great way to spend a few days training your mind. I hope that you're seeing some fruit. Often, uh, all we see is what's blocking, right? We see the hindrances, we see everything that's in the way first. I know for myself when I started practicing, I was pretty sure that's all that's in there. (laughs) Hatred, fear, lust. Hatred, fear, lust. Hatred, fear, lust. Hatred, fear, lust. Is there anything else in here? Is anybody home? It took me many, many moons to uh, start to get some relief. To start to uncover some of the kindness and compassion and balance and when we get there there is a feeling of deja vu of like oh i've been i know this have i been here before this oh it was always here i just didn't have access to it before it was just buried under a trash heap that's all all right enough from me May each one of us do what needs to be done to free ourselves. And together, may we create a positive change in this world. Thank you for listening. To learn how you can support the teachers and Dharma Seed, please visit dharmaseed.org slash donate.